The Old Testament scripture reading for this morning, as well as the sermon text, comes from Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading trowels, wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word this morning. Let us go now to our God in prayer and ask for his blessing. Our Father, we come before you and we know that we are but ashes and dust and so we prostrate ourselves before you asking that you would feed your sheep that you would use your holy spirit and that you would use the word of god indeed to comfort to strengthen to build up your people even here in this place and we pray all of this in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ amen Well, this morning, people of God, we come in many ways to the end of the Exodus. And uh, I know that seems like a strange way of putting it. Uh, this is not the final chapter in the book of Exodus. We have a long time to go, you know, 25 more chapters till you come to the end of this book. And, uh, 
you know, even as you go through the next few chapters, as the scriptures unfolds, this conflict that has been going on since chapter 3 between a mere man, essentially Pharaoh, and God himself will continue to unfold until there is one final, last, desperate gasp before this conflict is laid to rest. And it will all culminate in those judgment waters of the Red Sea that will bear down on Pharaoh's army while the host of the Lord will pass by unharmed. The story of the Exodus reaches its high point there at that moment when victory is total and decisive. And the story of the Exodus will continue on. It will continue unfolding. You know, it will go on to show the aim of all these things, the purpose of these things. That the people of God will be brought out into the wilderness to worship their God in spirit and in truth as they build the tabernacle and furnish the tabernacle where they will worship God. And we see the centrality of worship coming to bear upon the people of God, that this is the end for which they have been created. We'll see many things unfold as it comes to that point. We see the rebellion of Israel against their God with the golden calf, forsaking their God at the first moment of difficulty and opposition. We see them refuse to go up into the promised land because giants dwell there and they are fearful of what will happen and what may come. We see Israel fail over and over again and complaining and grumbling before their God. We see God in the midst of it stooping down, being faithful and condescending to his people over and over again. All this is coming and all this is revealed and born to bear upon the people of God. The story is not over in, the tr- and, uh, in truth. The story of God's working with his people is not over until the very end of the world with all these things, when all things are being made right as they should be. But in many ways today, we come to the end. A chapter is being closed in the lives of the people of God here. The last plague is finally being carried out, something that Exodus makes clear it has been building towards since chapter 3. This plague in particular has been what God has been steering us toward for weeks. This morning, we finally find out what it's all been about. For weeks now, we've seen plague after plague unfold on Egypt. We've seen God's judgment and his mercy unfold. We've seen God's people encouraged to worship and then immediately fall into discouragement and despair. We've seen God's great hand clearly at play. We've seen him undo his very creation and judgment upon the people of Egypt and then give us this feast of Passover to remember All of these things have been unfolding. And the question is, what is it all about? Why does it matter? What has the text been driving at? I mean, truly, what is the point of it all? I know we often ask that question of the text as we dig together into what God is doing in this world, what he is doing in the scriptures, and we ask it in many different ways, but we ask it firmly believing and trusting that God has a reason for all that he does. Every action that he takes is according to his design design and purposes and will bring him the utmost glory and the end of all things. And everything in this world builds towards that end, that particular crescendo. 
But as you look at these plagues, as we come to the conclusion of these ten signs and wonders performed in Egypt, to the end of this particular story worked out upon the stage of history in the lives of the Egyptian and in the lives of the people of God, the question is, why? Why in the world has God done all that he has done here? And why does it matter for me and for you today in the here and now? And the answer, people of God, as we'll see, is simply that his people would know and remember that God keeps his promises to his people. He keeps his covenant. He will not break his word. He will demonstrate his unfailing faithfulness to a faithless people. And we see this beginning to arise even in our text when we see the surrender of Egypt. First, the surrender of Egypt. As you come to verses 29 through 37 especially, we come to the actual final plague itself. You know, it seems as though we've been here forever in one sense. Uh, You know, after all, chapter 11 is the announcement of what is to come here and actually unfold here in these verses before us. And then chapter 12, the Passover, focus heavily on what will happen this very night and how the people of God are to remember these things as they go forward and celebrate these things for years to come. But as we come to these particular verses, we see the actual event unfold. And it says, And it came to pass at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. God actually now is doing what he has been preparing us for all along what he has been building towards in it. And he kills all the firstborn of the Egyptians, all the sons of the people who have been oppressing the people of God, who are living in blatant unbelief and rebellion against him. And in this moment, as you come to this particular text, that they are all slain in one fell swoop. God destroys the armies of Egypt, if you will. It is interesting as he is the... Uh, unfolding here as the text is unfolding, the Hebrew uses the word uh, smote, to smite. The Lord smote all of the firstborn. Today, that's not a common word we use. uh, You know, we think about slaying dragons or smiting dragons, but we don't use this on a regular basis. But to smite something is to slay it, to destroy it, to take its life, particularly in a battle of some kind. In other words, in case you've taken your eye off of the ball, God is going to war against his enemies. That's what he told Moses way back in chapter 3 when he said, we're going to go down to the people of Egypt because I have to make war on Pharaoh so that he will release my host, my army, my peoples. And you remember the very beginning of the plague, Pharaoh's war begins against God, willing, uh, basically saying, these people don't belong to anyone but me. That is what Pharaoh declares. They're mine, and so I'm going to make it known by oppressing them more severely because they are my servants. They belong to me and not yours, God Almighty. So God goes then to war against Pharaoh, this one who has raised himself up 
as a God. And he has been bringing plague upon plague upon plague upon the Egyptians that they might know who the true God is, who the victor will be. And this night, the true God slays his enemies. He kills even the son of Pharaoh, this one who is supposedly the son of God who will not rise again from the dead. And he does all this with those who do not believe upon him. And God makes no distinction among those who have been oppressing his people. He makes no distinction among them, saying as God sends forth the angel of death, that angel that will strike the death blow and strike the firstborn of all uh, uh, who are in the house of Pharaoh, who is seated on the, uh, the throne, and he will strike all the firstborn all the way down to the bottom of the social uh, scale, if you will, the prisoners in the dungeons, from the top to the bottom. In one fell swoop, God destroys all the enemies of God, their firstborn children. And just like that, when a great battle has happened, in flesh and blood, when we see this happening in today's uh, uh, world, we see a great cry will follow. And it goes up in all the land of Egypt as they mourn their loss. It says, no house was out without death. The mothers will cry for their children. Fathers will wail because the one who was their hope and trust, the one who would inherit, inherit the family, Fortune, the one who would carry forth the family, was slain and has been uh, this slaughter that is taking place in all the land of Egypt. And we see this unfolding, and it tells us that a great cry grows up in Egypt, one that has never been heard like it before and never will be heard again. And the people of Egypt cry out, just like Pharaoh made God's people cry out. He came down to oppress them. Back in chapter 2, you see there is a reversal going on here in this crying out. Exodus starts out one way, with the enemies of God still triumphing over the people of God. And now here, after all these supernatural plagues that only hardened Pharaoh's heart all the more, now God's enemies are defeated they were no longer holding victory over the people of God, but they are being laid waste by our God. And Pharaoh knows it. Finally, it becomes clear to him the situation of what is being unfolded before him. And he calls Moses to him in the middle of the night. This one whom Pharaoh cast out from his presence or commanded never to return again. Now Pharaoh is calling to him and he concedes everything. And he says to him, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and herds as you have said. Be gone and bless me also. Pharaoh's surrendering. He's giving up. He's done. He's saying no more, no mas. Please, I will not fight against the Almighty anymore. At least that is what he is displaying here. And so I'm going to give you everything that you have asked for, Moses. Everything that you have come into my presence requesting, uh, I, I am giving to you because you are the victor here. You know, clearly to the victor goes the spoils of war. And so you go out from here. Go and serve your God as you commanded. 
Pharaoh actually commands Moses to do these things, which Moses has been requesting all along. He doesn't fight it at all anymore. Moses and the people of Israel are being driven out from his presence, just as God said would happen. No longer is he trying to hold back the women and children, or uh, is he trying to hold back the flocks and herds. He specifically tells him all of these categories, I want you all out of here. Take it away. Go, flee, and serve the living and true God. Leave me and my dead in peace. You've won. What more do you want? And the Egyptians echo Pharaoh. They do the same thing, sending the people of God out in haste, saying, go, lest we all die because of you. People of God, it's important that we step back and consider what it is that we're seeing. You see this judgment has fallen on Egypt in this brutal manner, one that is offensive in many ways to our modern world. It is a foretaste of judgment to come. And we spoke of this a few weeks ago, so we won't belabor the point, but when that judgment comes, when the axe falls against the root of the tree and the death blow is dealt to the godly or ungodly and the unrighteous, Revelation tells us that on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I guarantee you, as we are seeing here, that not all of those bow knees will bow with willing knees. And yet they will bow before the victory. But not not over, not before their Lord. And that is what we are seeing here. Pharaoh is bowing the knee to God saying, you win, take your people and go. And then Pharaoh says this strange thing that seems you know, backwards with everything we've heard from him. He says, by the way, bless me also. Why would he say this? Is this, you know, is this an 11th hour conversion? What's he doing here when he makes that request? The people of God... I think it's more straightforward than that. No one wants to experience judgment. No one wants to experience the pain and suffering or the torments that come along with God's judgment. And so Pharaoh, as he says this thing to Moses, to pray for me, to bless me also, basically Pharaoh is saying, look, I don't want to suffer anymore. I I don't want to undergo the judgments of God. You win, so leave me and go and bless me also so that none of this will ever happen to me again. It's like a last-ditch effort. It's interesting. Pharaoh has no intention of turning from his sin or repenting in belief, but at the same time, he wants the benefits of believing and trusting upon this God. And he does the same thing that we see elsewhere in the Scriptures. Simon the Magician does this in Acts chapter 8. Simon, uh, uh, he is witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit and he tries to buy it from Peter. And Peter rebukes him basically saying, you are in the bonds of iniquity. And judgment lays before you because you don't even understand or comprehend the things of God. You want the benefits of being a child of God without the commitment that undergirds it. And God doesn't look kindly upon this kind of repentance because it is no true repentance. And those who refuse to turn from their sins in faith upon Christ Jesus, no matter how much they may seek to escape the judgment, they will not be able to do so. 
So what does all this mean? Why does it matter? As we watch this unfold, as we see Pharaoh's unrepentance, even in his asking to be blessed, people of God, God is doing all that he said he would do. He is keeping his promise that he made to his people. And Egypt surrenders. And now we see God keeping his promise in the deliverance of his people. God keeps his promise in the deliverance of his people. The people of God, what we see unfold next, what we see come through the rest of this text is the main point of it all. We see the Israelites plunder the Egyptians and go. The text tells us they go with the dough from their bread that is still not risen and they have to put it upon their shoulders to carry it. And the people of God journey and they go out of the land. They are leaving Egypt, all of them. All the men, all the women, all the children, no one will be left behind. And they all go out of the land of Egypt to serve their God. And the text ends saying this in verse 40. The time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And then it repeats itself again, 430 years to that selfsame day when they went down. The hosts of the people of God went out from the land of Egypt. What is the point of all this? I mean, why is it that Moses is drawing our eyes to these particular details of the story? Why do these particular things matter most here? What's Moses' point as he is writing these words for God's people who will read it in millennia from now? Notice the pattern of what Moses is doing as he reminds us what is being done here says the people of God plunder the Egyptians just as God promised them they would do. This is a promise of God to his people. Way back in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, your offspring, they're going to go down to the land of Egypt for a long time. And when they come up from the house of bondage, they're going to come up with great possessions. And that is what we are seeing here. The people of God leave the land of Egypt and they have taken the silver and the gold and the clothing, the fine jewels. They've taken everything from the people of uh, Egypt. They are plundering them and coming out with great possessions, even as God has promised them they would do. God has made a promise to his people of a good future for them and it is happening it is being fulfilled this day and Moses keeps driving our eyes to that truth that reality again and again he pushes forward with what God has promised he is fulfilling and God's people left Egypt with the bread still in the kneading bowls on their shoulders because the bread didn't have time to rise and there was no yeast in the bread when they left Moses reminds us of these things because he again is doing what God has promised would happen. He told them, eat this meal, this Passover meal with your traveling clothes on because the day is coming when I will call you out of Egypt and they are going to send you out so fast you're going to be driven out of this land like cattle before cowboys. God promised them that this would happen and on this day they would fly from the house of bondage And they do just as they said he would do. And he told them you wouldn't even have time for the yeast to set in the bread and to rise. 
And after 430 years, this language that is emphasized, after 430 years, the house of Israel, the children of Jacob and of Isaac and Abraham before him, they finally leave the land of Egypt for good. Their feet are moving forward out of the house of bondage. After 430 years, they leave. But remember, this is just as God has promised to Abraham when he said, your offspring are going to dwell in a foreign land for over 400 years. And after that time, I will bring them out with a mighty hand. And God keeps his promises in this too. You see, people of God, what Israel needs to hear and to see as they are exiting the land of Egypt, what they need to be reminded and believe upon is that in everything that God has ever promised to his children, everything that he has ever set forth to their forefathers in the faith, he will and is accomplishing. Not one jot or tittle of what he has promised remains unfulfilled. God is accomplishing all that he has set out to do and it is his joy to do so. And through it all, God never once takes his eyes off of his children. He watches over them and he will protect them. He has been their shield and their defender against the angel of death itself. He has set himself up as their guardian who will ensure that his people are brought through the other side and he will be their defender just as a mother hen guards over and hovers over her chicks. He cares for, he protects his people just as he has been Abraham's shield and defender. So now he is their shield and defender. And the people of God must be reminded of these things that our God will fulfill all that he has set out to do beyond anything else. They need to remember and rest in and trust in these promises so that when they see all the enemies of God have been defeated, as they watch Pharaoh and all of Egypt surround or surrender to their God and let them go from the land, they need to know that God is keeping his promises. Why? Because they need to know who their God is that they worship. They worship a faithful God who keeps his word even to a thousand generations. He will not break his covenants. They are yes and amen. And so they can wholeheartedly and completely worshiping, worship him giving themselves to him, knowing that his word is true, that his promises are secure, and not just Israel will find this out and will worship him because of it, but a mixed multitude goes up from Egypt. A mixed multitude means it's not just Israel who is leaving, but even some of the Egyptians have seen what God has done and believed, and so now they too can trust and depend upon the words of God, the promises that he has given concerning his people. And he does no less for you, people of God, this day. God has made precious promises concerning his son, Christ Jesus, for you. Promises that we hear week in and week out. It is a faithful and trustworthy saying, worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sinners like you and me. 
We need to hear these promises afresh and believe upon them just as Israel would hear the promises given to Abraham and they would believe upon them looking back and saying, look, God did what he said he would do and they might trust that God will be true to his word in season and out of season though every man be proven a liar. Why? Because he sent his only begotten son, Christ Jesus, into the world. And Christ Jesus died for you so that you might be brought near to him. He cleansed you of all unrighteousness in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ. He has done all of these things. He is fulfilling the promises that he made long ago to Adam and to Eve that he would bring forth a child, one who would be a deliverer. And he is doing it. He is bringing forth a child of Abraham through the God-man. One who would draw his people out from their bondage, out of the house of Egypt, into his good land, into that final resting place where we would be in the presence of our God and able to worship him in spirit and in truth. He does all this. He gives us more than just promises. He gives us promises that have been kept and are real and as tangible as the ground you walk on, people of God, for they are as true as the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him. Indeed, God is fulfilling his word. He is fulfilling his promises in him, in Christ, the son who would be brought out of the house of bondage. Why has God done this for his people? It's an interesting question. Was it because Israel deserves it? Because they suffered enough? Is it because they have less sins in their hearts than the Egyptians? We'll see in just a little while that that is not true. He does not save and deliver his people because of our own merit, because we will walk out of that door this day, and we will sin against him in thought, word, and deed daily, the confession tells us. But he does so because God has promised all along, ever since our first parents fell into sin against God and unrighteousness, God has promised that he would redeem his people, that he would deliver his children from evil. The people of God, he does this because he is being faithful to himself. He cannot lie. He will not do, or he will only do that which he has said he would do. The people of God, Christ Jesus has come, and he has come to live a perfectly righteous life on your behalf. And he has died for your sins all so that God's words might be shown true, so that we would trust in the faithfulness of our heavenly Father so that we would remember and believe upon these things, even as we are gathered to worship him this day, knowing what lies ahead for us. As they prepare and embark out upon their journey, knowing that they are going to wander for a little while at least until they come to the land of, that is promised to them. That God's word be true, that though any, every man be proved a liar, People of God, rest upon the truths that are declared unto you through Christ Jesus. Indeed, that in him, that as the head goes, so goes the body. For he is the first fruits, and the rest of us are being gathered up into that heavenly land. Though we walk through the wilderness for this time, 
But for a season, his word is true and secure, and you can take it to the bank. Caress securely upon the promises of God, for in him your life is hidden. People of God, rest upon him as one who is indeed the firstborn son of God, who died and yet who rose again. Take hold of these things, not as though you have never believed them before, but believing them afresh, that you might be nourished and fed and therefore able to walk a life in humility and holiness because of all that he has done for you. You see, people of God, he keeps his promises, reminding you of what kind of God he is in order that we might turn and worship him more fully, knowing exactly who our God is. He's the kind of God who delivers his people. He's the kind of God who is faithful to his word. A God who is from everlasting to everlasting, who will not abandon you to Hades. But he tells us, even in his word, that he will be with us, will not leave us nor forsake us. All these precious promises are true, and we see them demonstrated here, and we see them demonstrated in the God's man, in his death, in his resurrection. May we believe upon these things again, that we may walk forth in this life, seeking to live godly lives because of what he has done for us, and worship him in all things. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we come before you and we thank you that you have been moving towards this point all along to remind us how you keep your promises, how you would defeat, how you will on that last and final day, you will defeat all the enemies of God. Not one will stand before you, but all will bow before you and confess that Jesus is the Lord. We thank you for these truths, that judgments will be poured out against all the enemies of God, and yet that you will deliver your people, not because of their worth, not because of anything within us, but because of the perfect blood and righteousness of Christ that we hold by faith and rest in. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We ask that you would help us as we walk through this life to turn our eyes back to these precious promises that we might worship you each and every day as we seek to walk humbly before you. Lord, we ask that you would do these things for your people and pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.